I find whenever um, you give a talk in Catholic circles, there's always a certain uh, tension between focusing on being as opposed to doing. So, like, we know, I think we know, that when it comes to philosophy, the, the primacy is always on being, right? So, you know, be a good tree, produce good fruit, that type of thing, right? So that is actually the hierarchy of, in terms of, you know, theology and God's way. So be a good person and good deeds will, will flow. But at the same time, just from a practical standpoint, whenever you're giving a talk, you always got to get to the point of like, what do we do? Because sometimes it's hard to make that connection, especially in the context of like a single talk or even a couple of days between what I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to do. So this talk tonight is, is a kind of about the doing. So as a matter of review, so the first session was all about defining the church's mission, right? So the church's mission is making disciples of all nations, right? Discipleship is all about following Christ with the ultimate aim of becoming another Christ in this world. And yesterday we talked about evangelization uh, from a personal or individual standpoint, right? So we talked about pre-evangelization, the work that we do to prepare for the explicit work of evangelization. So we talked about human formation, we talked about spiritual formation. And we talked about like different strategies to kind of bring about evangelization, right? So overcoming your fear or like what to bring to, to bear when it comes to actual dialogue with people that you're trying to evangelize. But today it's, uh, it's a little bit different. So today is, is about evangelization, but from a communal standpoint. You know? So originally when I kind of designed the three talks, um, the middle talk was supposed to be about all the ways we're kind of screwing up evangelization. But I thought that would be just depressing. So <laughs> that's why I decided to divide it up. So um, talk two was about an individual approach, and then today is all about kind of a group or communal setting. So to kind of like frame the thing, um, back in the day uh, when Pope Francis was merely um, Jorge Bergoglio, Cardinal Jorge Bergoglio, he gave a speech, a really famous speech on the eve of the papal conclave, right? So as you probably know, papal conclave, that's where the cardinals come together, they vote on the next pope, right? So white smoke and the whole nine yards, right? So Pope Francis, um, again, he wasn't elected Pope yet, but he was giving this, this really interesting speech. So he talked about the nature of the church, and he had this, this line where he said, um, the church is inherently missionary. The church is inherently missionary, which in itself is a really powerful line, right? So the church doesn't just have a mission, the church is a mission. The mission of the church is not something we do on the side, it's like the main thing we're supposed to do because it flows from the church's very being. And it's kind of an interesting thing. Sometimes you, you look at Pope Francis's speeches or letters or whatever, and you don't really read the whole thing. And uh, just the other day, I read the whole thing, you know, um, instead of just kind of looking at that one line. And it's interesting when you read the thing in context, because he went on to say that um, basically when it comes to this idea of living the church's mission, it's a binary option. So either I, I live on the church's mission, or I don't. And if I don't, it's not simply a neutral thing, it's, it's a bad thing, right? So he, basically what he said was that um, the church is always in danger of becoming self-referential in a sense of not living for other people but existing for itself. And we all see that, right? So again, you think about this idea of like our values are reflected by what we do, what we spend our money on, what we spend our time on. And so a lot of times when we look at like programs and strategies kind of flowing from the church, you gotta ask yourself, is it, is it really for, for them is it for the scattered, right? Is it to uh, work in service of the church's mission? Or is it really for us, and simply for us? And the Pope goes on to say that when we do that, when the church becomes self-referential, um, then the church is guilty of like the most wicked evil that can befall the church, and that's basically spiritual worldliness, 
And all sorts of corruption kind of flows from that, right? So again, it's a binary option. You see a similar thing in the Bible, right? Just to kind of legitimize this point that I'm making. So you think about um, St. Peter, right? Caesarea Philippi, right? So the Lord, you know, kind of informally taking a Gallup poll. Who do people say that I am? Well, some people say this, some people say that. Who do you say that I am, right? And Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, you are the son of the living God, and so on and so forth. Yes, and you are Peter, and on this rock I shall found my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. So far, so good. But then, of course, in the very next breath, the Lord talks about his mission. Well, by the way, the Son of Man will suffer at the hands of his enemies, be killed, but come back on the third day. And St. Peter, he's no dummy, right? So he's like, I've just been appointed Pope. That means I'm the second in command. That means, oh my gosh, that means I'm going to suffer and die. And so he's like, oh no, Lord, this must never happen to you. Subtitle, this must never happen to me. <laughs> and so, and of course, what does the Lord say? You know, get behind me, Satan. You have become a stumbling block to me. Get behind me, Satan. You have become a stumbling block to me. It's interesting when you look at the catechism of the Catholic Church, right? So the leadership of the papacy flows from clarity about who Christ is. Like, who is Jesus Christ? The very name of Christ is like, you know, Jesus, rather. God saves. Again, this idea, right? So the mission is not simply what I do, it's who I am. The very name Jesus means God saves. So just to think it through, right? So if I am called to be a disciple, another Christ in this world, I don't just share in Christ's being, I have to share in this mission because his very name means God saves. Now to go back to this episode involving Caesarea Philippi is really kind of interesting, right? So again, the Lord is proposing a binary option. Either you follow me, and you walk behind me, and you take up your cross too, and walk the path of suffering love for the sake of the other, in which case you become this light of the world, you know, salt of the earth, that sort of thing. You draw people to yourself, to me, through your witness, right? Or you don't. You go your own way, in which case you become a stumbling block, and again, it's not a neutral position. People know intuitively that Christianity is meant to involve sacrificial love, is meant to involve the cross. And when they don't see that in its membership, people fall away because of scandal. There's this American priest, Father John Ricardo, I think I've cited him before. He has this really interesting um, story in this regard, right? So basically, he was giving a talk, and he was kind of inviting the young people in the, in the group, like, Okay, so I guess some of you have fallen away from church before in the past, and, and can, can you cite reasons why, right? So some people say, well, you know, my parents didn't drive me or whatever, right? So he said, you know, for myself, um, this might sound like a contradiction, but the reason why I fell away from the church as a young man was that I perceived, I intuited this reality that Christianity involves the total giving of oneself, and implied in that the giving of oneself for the sake of Christ and his mission. He goes, but I didn't see anyone doing that. And implied in that was, that was a massive scandal. And so I thought, why would I join a club where people profess to believe one thing, but they're doing something else? It's basically joining a club of hypocrites, right? And so he fell away, right? And I think what I want to propose to you is that that's, that's not a common thing. That's not an uncommon thing, rather, right? So again, either we live fully out of the church's mission or massive scandals to the world, right? So with that in mind, um, I want to go through um, five elements that you find in this, in this really key book, which really influenced my own ministry, um, called Forming Intentional Disciples by someone named Sherry Waddell. So basically the whole thing with this book, right, is talking about discipleship building, but basically it's respecting the process of meeting people where they're at. 
And the, the idea here is that you don't want to skip steps. Right? So we're going to go through these things one at a time. And even though today is mainly about how we can solve things from a communal perspective, I'll also throw in some ideas for what you can do from an individual perspective as well. So first of all, um, the idea of trust. That's the first level. So when it comes to forming intentional disciples, living out the mission of the church, the most important thing to do is to establish a deep sense of trust. So when it comes to the individual, it starts with your presence, right? So Brett Powell, he talks about this, right? And he says basically, you know, programs are important, strategies are important, different initiatives are important. But first and foremost, what is primary, what is of primary importance is the presence that you bring. And so when you encounter people, do people trust you? Do people feel safe around you? Or are they tense? Are they worried you're gonna judge them, right? Not good. We often forgo that step, it's kind of interesting. And we think, okay, I'll just, I'll just say things which are true to people who don't trust me, and yeah, I hope something sticks. That's not how it goes, right? Your presence is first and foremost. Um, now, in, in terms of like groups, right? Different strategies you can kind of use, right? So, the communal thing. For those of you who are on social media, um, it's important to kind of realize if you're using social media for evangelization purposes, which you should be, right? Um, the idea is that you post different things for different purposes. So certain things are meant to be explicitly evangelical, if you will, catechetical, whatever, but some things, purposely, are meant to just foster a sense of trust a positive association with something identifiably Catholic or Christian. So for those of you who follow Catholic Latte, which should be everybody, right? um, you probably noticed um, I have a cat, and uh, my cat's name is Whiskey. And as you know, it's Whiskey because of the whiskers as opposed to other reasons, right? And I, I post a lot of pictures and videos of my cat. Some would say obsessive, right? <laughs> so, now, the reason why I post pictures of my cat, first of all, I love my cat. I really do, right? The whole world can know that because it's being published. <laughs> I love my cat. But another reason is because I'm really using whiskey for ulterior motives. Because <laughs> people are not threatened by cats, unless they're dog people, perhaps, right? So the idea is, like, you know, when you look at the hits that whiskey gets, it's through the roof. Like, the, like my most popular video on Catholic Latte, it's almost ridiculous. It's, uh, it's whiskey looking out the window in Vancouver. But what happens is like it's generating traffic. Like I don't care how people sign into Catholic Latte, I just care that they're there, right? If they come because of a cat video, fine. I don't care, right? I get a ton of subscribers because people love looking at my cat. So yeah, I'll post these silly videos about my cat and cat socks and whatever, because it just generates traffic. And once they're on, yeah, we could talk about the spiritual life. But you got to get them through that door first, right? So really, really important. You probably know that um, in my last uh, assignment, I, w I wasn't just pastor of St. Joseph the Worker Parish in Oshawa, but I was also a chaplain. And it was kind of, uh, well, kind of, it was missionary territory. So before I arrived there, there hadn't been an official priest chaplain set up for the post-secondary institutions in Oshawa. And obviously, I'd never been chaplain before, so it was like, okay, here's this missionary territory. I'm the first chaplain. Like, what do we do, you know? Here's the budget, here's the mandate, you know, the world's your oyster type thing. And I have to admit, when I first started out, um, my strategy was way off because I forgot about this principle. I forgot about establishing a sense of trust. And so what we did at the outset, we did what I think a lot of parishes do, right? So we just started with explicitly catechetical programs and we called them discipleship groups. And only like two people came out every week. Like one of them was forced to go to play because of his dad. <laughs> but it was one of those things. And what do people typically say in those situations? 
well, it's not about the numbers. Eh, it kind of is, actually. It kind of is. So if you're investing all this time and effort in something to which only two people come, that's pretty bad, right? So what we did instead, I, I was, I was walking, you know, I'm from Vancouver, right? So I was, I was walking around downtown Vancouver, and we had done these establishment groups for, for months. They weren't working. Those same two people were coming. Sometimes one guy couldn't make it, then we had one guy. Then it was really embarrassing, right? But anyways, um, I think it was summer, uh, no, sorry, Christmas vacation. I was in Vancouver, and Vancouver has a lot of coffee shops. I'm not sure if they still do, but there's one street where there's two Starbucks on the same block across from each other, so they really love their coffee, right? And so um, something I noticed about coffee shops, especially in Vancouver, like they're all trying to get a piece of the pie, right? So they're very attentive to um, environments and decor. Same thing with the mall, you know? Especially as, as the years have progressed, malls and, and the creators of malls have been really intentional in terms of like lighting and color and all these things. It's funny how we haven't largely grasped that as a concept. So what do we have in the Catholic Church? We have a lot of meeting spaces, but we don't have a lot of welcoming spaces, right? Places where people kind of want to hang out, not because they have to, because there's a meeting, right? So given all that, I thought, huh, that's kind of neat. Maybe we should do something similar, right? So what we did, we allocated one of the rooms, which before then everyone hated. That was the room that people went through to get to the room they really wanted to get to, you know? Um, and then we basically petitioned the archdiocese, like, can we get some money and we'll use people locally to kind of reconstruct this room to make it an intentional welcoming space. And I remember going through the color palette, you know, it's almost like picking the color for your kitchen, you know, and people were like, oh, we should pick like um, brown or gray or something. It's like, forget that. This, this room's going to be red, you know. It was white initially, so it took multiple coats. <laughs> but anyways, so red room, uh, barn board, uh, wall type thing, TV. Um, hardwood floors, um, you know, little coffee setup situation. And what we did, this became our bread and butter for Oshawa Catholic Chaplaincy. We just had this recurring um, thing where it was just a social on Saturday night. So like, you know, Saturday night, there's obviously the evening mass, and that would lead to a social if like, people want to drop by. And the only goal of the social was to give you a positive association with something identically Catholic. There was no catechetical element, we just want you to show up and have a good time. Like, that's the goal. And you might think, like, why not try to accomplish more than that? I just want to get them through the door. Because if they come, like, here's the thing, right? So if they come for any reason, you got a kid in a church on Saturday night. And if they come, like, repeatedly and they have a good time, you know, and like, especially if people are trained to be welcoming and intentional in that regard, where do they experience community? Where did I experience friendship? Where did I experience safety? Oh my gosh, it was in that red room on Saturday night. And you can do all sorts of things with that. And we did. Like once we had that, uh, this experience of trust, and it's like, oh, um, let's go on a retreat. Uh, let's go to a come and see weekend to discern the priesthood. We had like five people go on that thing, you know? Because we didn't skip that step. I'll give you another example from a parish setting. We had um, movie nights, you know? So we had. Uh, because you, you basically, you've you got to make it legal, right? So you've got you to get like a movie license. Um, and we're showing these movies in the parish hall. And so what we did, we got these um, sort of like mats, you know, so purposely it was two colors. So it was like blue and black. We made a little checkerboard pattern and it covered the whole thing. We dimmed the lights and we showed movies. Some people were saying, oh, we should show like uh, religious movies. And it's like, not in your life. <laughs> we're going to show like Disney films and popular films because we're just trying to get people through the door, right? And I remember for the longest time, I had this ongoing debate with certain members of the movie committee because they, they thought, okay, well, it's a lot of work, you know, to set it up. 
And then once it's done, we just turn on the lights and just clean up and just pack it in. And I'm like, no, no. Like the most important part of the evening is the after party. So whatever you do, don't turn on those lights. I know it's popcorn on the floor, but just leave it, right? Because people have experienced this thing where like they've watched this movie, right? They've had a positive experience in a church on a Sunday night, it's crazy. And now they're talking about it, which reinforces the experience. So let them talk about it. Like let them talk about it and let that play out because what happens there, they're owning the thing. And they talk to other people, right? Oh, I, I had a really good time at St. Joseph's Worker Parish. And again, it builds a ton of goodwill. So don't turn off those lights and leave the popcorn on the floor. And what ended up happening, we ended up getting like, you know, one night we had like 100 people come out, you know? Yeah, but the idea is like, don't skip steps, build trust. I guess that's the first step, right? Second step is um, this idea of curiosity. So presuming you put in the work to um, cultivate a sense of trust, then it's curiosity. So let's say you get people, they have a positive association, positive experience associated with something identified by Catholic, maybe associated with the church, right? So maybe now they're curious to know something about the person of Christ, something about um, Christianity, something about Catholicism, right? Now even then, kid gloves, right? Because what happens a lot of times, like, oh, RCA, and it's like, whoa, you know? Um, you want to be incremental, meet people where they're at. So as an individual, to be attentive to, to difference, right? People are very different. So say, for example, someone's a little bit curious, like, okay, if I'm an individual, what do I give them or where do I direct them, right? So you think about media, right? So you think about books, you think about podcasts, you think about movies, you think about people. And the idea is you want to do the work ahead of time. In the back of your mind, you have this whole repertoire of like, okay, Say if I meet someone who likes books, but only a certain type of book, I gotta be aware of what that book is, right? So not everyone loves high-end theology books. Surprise, surprise, right? Maybe people want devotional books. Maybe people want something in point form. Maybe people want biographies. Maybe people want apologetics, right? You gotta like know, like what are these books? So depending on the, on the experience or the situation, I can give the person the appropriate thing. Same thing with podcasts, right? Same thing with people, too. Like, who do I know in my Catholic circle where it's just like, you know what, you should really meet so-and-so. Maybe I introduce you to that person in the context of, like, dinner or a parish function and off to the races, you know? Do I have a list of people in the back of my mind that I could refer people to, right? Now, with regards to groups, it's kind of interesting. You want to be attentive to the details. So Bishop Robert Barron talks about this in terms of, like, um, the beautiful. So he frames it in terms of the, the three great transcendentals, the good and the true and the beautiful. And what he says very famously is he must always want, try to lead with the beautiful. He must always try to lead with the beautiful because you think it through, right? The true and the good can be intimidating. Here's what you should think. Here's what you should do, right? Ooh, people get their backs up. But when it comes to beauty, like, oh, look at this beautiful thing. Jesus, of course, says that all the time in the Gospels, right? So he's arguing a lot with the scribes and the Pharisees, and all of a sudden he, he seems to change topics, but he really isn't. It's the same thing with different packaging. So I always laugh when I kind of see this in the gospel. So he's, he's teaching with them, he's teaching them, he's arguing with them, they're having this back and forth, you know, you know vitriol and stuff. And he's like, huh, uh, well, let me tell you a story. Oh, okay, good, story time. And he tells them a story, and it's the same thing. He's like, wait, that, that's us. <laughs> and it's too late, you know? <laughs> he made the same point using a story, right? So same thing with us, okay, so leading with, with the beautiful and being attentive to details in that regard. So um, hopefully this goes without saying. 
But mass is not meant to be the primary means of evangelization. It's not mean, meant to be the primary means of catechesis even. You know? It's meant primarily to be an act of worship. I want to make sure you get that point right. You know, I'm not trying to be godless here. I know that the Eucharist is a source of summit, right? But what's the typical strategy when people like try to evangelize? I'll just you know, bring my kid to mass, right? And you know, kids should go to mass. But the point is, it's not meant to be the primary means of evangelization or catechesis, because otherwise, what? I'll rise in the homily. It's like, oh, the homily was terrible. Oh, too bad. <laughs> I have no other option. <laughs> there have to be other entry points into the life of the church. So I'll give you an example. Um, theology on Tap. I don't know if you've heard of Theology on Tap, but basically Theology on Tap is what it sounds like. It's you know, a theology talk in a bar. You know? And I remember um, there were some discussions in my last parish, like, well, you know, it'd be more convenient to have Theology on Tap in the parish hall. And it's like, not in your life. Are you kidding me? That's the whole point of Theology on Tap, to get out of the parish hall. Right? It's a tough sell. To say, like, okay, um, so-and-so, I know you don't really come to church, but can you come to the parish hall? Uh, no. <laughs> Whereas if it's like, oh, can you come to a bar on a Saturday night? Okay, oh my gosh, it's theology talk. <laughs> but even with the theology talk, I, I remember back in the day, we were really explicit about creating accessible and fun things. So I, I gave a talk on um, Catholic themes and Disney films, you know? And people came out to that because they love Disney films. And that became an entry point to the life in the church. And who knows, you know, what goes from there? We had another thing called um, Lexio Divina, right? So you probably know this. Uh, Cardinal Collins uh, from, the, from the cathedral, he'll expound upon the Word of God. Like, he's brilliant at this, right? He'll, he'll do it on, on Sunday nights, once a month. And we had a live streaming capacity. So we would stream that thing, and we would build a whole party around it, right? So the idea was that it was, there was evening prayer, and then there was Lexio Divina, where he would expound upon the gospel. It was all being live streamed. It was in the parish hall, but we set it up in such a way that it became fun and inviting. So it was connected with food, different groups that sponsored that, the lights were dim, and we had, this is the important thing, we had tables in the main part of the hall, circular tables, but we're also aware of the fact that the people sometimes hate sitting at circular tables. Uh, me at the top of the list. <laughs> so, so what we did is we set up purposely chairs at the back. And I remember making the announcements on the weekends, um, kind of announcing um, Lexa Divina and saying like, look, I just care that you come. Like, if you don't want to talk to people, you just want to hear what the Cardinal says, like, you can come in the Shroud of Darkness <laughs> and sit at the back and then leave before the lights come up. And people did. And I, I honestly didn't care because you just showed up, right? And again, to be attentive to that, some people don't necessarily like to talk in big groups. And, you know, yeah, like, you don't want to make that a, a made-up obstacle to a person receiving the fullness of the faith. So there's that. Okay. Next step is um, curiosity, right? So. Oh, sorry, openness. So now there's this idea of the possibility of change. So I've established trust. Uh, I want to know a little bit more about the Christian thing. Now there's the possibility of change. So like, okay, here's my will, my heart being brought to the equation. So what do you do from that perspective, right? As an individual, you need to recognize the opportunity. So we, we touched on this um, yesterday, right? So there are different moments where people are more open as opposed to less open to receiving the gospel. So moments of failure, moments of death, uh, moments where I'm encountering my own weakness and vulnerability. That last thing, of course, we encounter that all the time, right? And what comes to mind in that regard, um, there's this conference I went to back in the day 
where um, basically they were talking to seminary formators, but they were talking by extension to us as fellow disciples, right? And basically the idea is that as we journey together, there will be inevitably moments where I feel weak and I feel vulnerable. And the idea is, how does my friend receive me in that moment? How does the Christian community receive me in that moment? Do they receive me with judgment? Do they receive me with condemnation? Do they receive me with indifference, right? Or do they receive me with love and acceptance? And basically, the speaker was saying, like, you want to create that moment for people, not just once, but over and over again, where they feel in their back of their minds, like, I can be weak and vulnerable before my friends, and he or she does not reject me. That is a really, really powerful thing. I remember a priest friend of mine talking about this, and the way he phrased it was like, you know, God's grace and his love is um, incarnational, typically. I mean, God can convey his grace and his love through, you know, in an unmediated fashion, but typically he conveys it through people. Not necessarily through their words, but, but through their presence. And so the way he phrased it, it's kind of funny when you hear it, but it was true. So he's like, we can name the reason why we're sad or frustrated or angry or upset in the privacy of our room, and it doesn't make us feel better. But if we do it in the presence of someone in whose love that we trust, then that's game-changing. The idea that I don't just say to someone that I trust, like, look, I'm feeling sad. I experience my sadness and my brokenness in front of that person. And again, he or she does not reject me. They don't need to say anything else. But that's a powerful, powerful thing. It's, it's God's love being transmuted to you in an incarnational fashion, right? Now, in terms of, like, groups, right, it's important to be mindful of that when you're constructing um, programs and strategies. Again, it's one of those things, it might, it might sound kind of obvious, but it's amazing how we forget this. You gotta have um, an appetite to receive people who are in progress of becoming the persons that God is calling us to be, which of course is everybody. So, like, in contrast, think about um, the cancel culture. I don't know if you know what that is, right? So, here's someone, you know, they didn't done something wrong, maybe it's like a million years ago, but hey, you know, we found out about it, and now you're done. You can never work again, we will never forgive you, and like, that's it. It's a diabolical thing, right? Certainly there, there's, there's room for like, you know, asking for forgiveness and making reparation for the harm that you've done, right? But if we can't, if we don't give room for each other and for ourselves to be weak and to be vulnerable and to like fall and get up and try again and to be persons in progress, like, what are we doing? We don't have that concept locked in the back of our minds, like, you know, how can we preach the gospel, right? So the idea is that you want to have a situation in terms of, like, programs or strategies that allow for that, right? Someone doesn't have to be perfect. Is there a place for them in our group? Is there a place for them in our program? Or are our programs and strategies designed for people who are meant to meet this predetermined standard, which actually is in Christ's standard? That's a really terrible thing, right? You know, the, the example that comes to mind from the gospel, um, the parable of the two sons. It's one of those um, plots where it's like it's so simple, you think the takeaway message is pretty easy, but it's really profound, actually. Father goes out to his two sons, right? Um, come work in the vineyard. One says yes, one says no. One says yes, doesn't come. One says no, eventually comes. Gospel of the Lord. Right? You're like, what's the point of that story, right? The key, in a certain sense, is to ask yourself the question, like, why does the father go by himself to ask these sons one at a time to come work in the vineyard? Because you think about, I mean, the fact that he has a vineyard means that he's pretty rich, right? So rich men at the time of Christ, they wouldn't go by themselves, and they wouldn't ask. They'd send a delegate, you know? 
The father says, do this. You better come, you know? And instead, this father goes by himself. And the reason why has something to do with the nature of the vineyard and the nature of the work, right? So what's the vineyard? The vineyard represents the world, and the work, because it's God the Father, is a work of salvation and redemption. How does he bring about the work of salvation and redemption? Primarily through his suffering and death on the cross. So the question that's being posed to both of the two sons is, will you share with me in this work, which is essential to my being? Again, Jesus' name means God saves. It's going to involve suffering. It's going to involve dying to oneself. But hey, we'll be together. When you look at the gospel, the guy who says yes, it's, uh, it has this impression of like, he says yes right away. It's a superficial yes. The guy who says no, he says no because he gets it. Like, I hear what you're saying, Dad. I know it's for the salvation of the world, but there's a part of me that is not chomping at the bit to suffer and die. And so my initial response is to say no. Well, what's interesting is that if you play out the entire gospel, and the reason why he says no and the reason why he comes back are kind of both in the same thing, right? So he has this familiarity and trust in the relationship with the Father. I can tell my Father exactly what's on my mind, my apprehensions, my fears, my struggles. I can say to my Father, this is where I'm at, and he receives me in that. And when I go away and I experience like, you know, gosh, like there's the fear of suffering, but there's also the love of my Father, God gives me time and space to realize that I'm designed to love him above all things. And so even though he wants me to have the firm unflinching yes, he realizes to get to that point, he needs to give me the space to give also as a preliminary nose. Like that's the gospel. It's crazy, right? But exceedingly good news. And the idea is that we need to build that into our programs and our strategies as well, right? Do we have room for people who are in progress of becoming the persons that God is calling us to be? Fourth thing, it's all about seeking, right? So the analogy that's, that Sherry Waddell uses, it's like um, spiritual seeking is like um, intentional dating. So at this point, like, I have the idea that discipleship is on the horizon, and now I'm intentionally dating with the purpose of marriage, right? So again, what do you do as an individual? What do you do as a member of a group? As an individual, I think it's important to um, be aware of the mystery of the human person. Be aware of the mystery of the human person. Like, People, everyone in this room and everyone who's ever existed, there's a, there's a complexity and a depth and a mystery that, that you're not even really aware of yourself. And so, you know, with that in mind, I got basically I keep that in mind if I engage in anything, any sort of interaction, one-off conversation or again, designing programs and strategies, right? And, and that's, that's the difficulty when it comes to conversing with people and you're not, you're not attentive to the complexity of who they are in their experience you give superficial answers. So, you know, I often think about G.K. Chesterton, right? So he says basically, um, life, human life is like a complex lock that needs an equally complex key to unlock that lock. And so the whole idea is you don't want to give constantly empty platitudes and superficial responses to the human experience because after a while, it's like a massive turnoff. I'll tell you this joke to kind of illustrate the point. I heard this once at a priest retreat, right? So, Basically, the story goes, this guy was in an airplane, and he was wearing a parachute, and he wanted to parachute off in some location. And he, he parachuted at the, the wrong location, so he ended up in a tree. And so he's hanging in this tree, he's all scared and stuff, he's totally not where he was supposed to get off. And all of a sudden, this guy's walking below. And so the guy above says, help, help. The guy below stops, looks up. The guy above says, can, can you tell me where I am? And the guy below says, you're in a tree. 
And the guy above says, uh, thanks, Father. And the guy below says, how do you know I was a priest? And he, <laughs> he said, because he told me something that was true, but totally useless. <laughs> and how often have we sat in those pews? I've sat in those pews, you know, just hearing things like, okay, here's these really interesting topics being brought up. And then, okay, what do you do? You hear this thing, and it's like, ah, that can't be right. But I'm in a church, so I guess I gotta accept it. <laughs> Happens all the time. So frustrating. I remember, this, this is something I always remember. In my first parish, I was, I was preaching as a young priest. And um, I framed the issue correctly but there was no follow-through. So I forget exactly what the gospel was, but basically I was talking about this thing, and then there was this woman sitting like in the fifth or sixth row, and she was leaning in, leaning in, like, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, he's naming the thing, that's my experience, that's my experience. And then it got to like, this is what you do? And she fell back in her seat <laughs> because I gave this superficial platitude. And I always remembered that, and I thought, you know, to best of my ability, I will never do that again. It's demoralizing for people. Completely demoralizing, you know? If all we can say to people in different circumstances is like, oh gosh, I guess I'll pray for you, and no trust in the Lord, <laughs> uh, it's a little more complicated than that, you know? So I'll give you a concrete example, right? So um, sins involving purity. Let's say people are like struggling with watching pornography, masturbation, whatever the case may be, right? So what do you typically hear? Like, well, some variation of like, you know, that's bad, don't do that. Okay, I guess I'll try, you know? or avoid occasions of sin, or pray more, right? Sometimes people take it to the next level. They say, well, okay, be aware of um, physiological things. You know, so you probably heard the acronym HALT, H-A-L-T. So hunger, anger, loneliness, tired, like fatigue. And the idea is that if two of those things are off the rocker, then like, that's not good. Three of the four, then you're, you're in trouble type thing. But even then, like, that doesn't really capture the thing. So, um, I, I remember reading this, this one book, um, the name escapes me for a moment, but basically it was talking about false core beliefs, right? So a lot of times when people engage in this behavior, they're, they're laboring under false core beliefs. This idea of like, you know, um, if people really knew me, they would reject me. And no one could ever really love me, including God. I can't trust anybody, right? And so when I feel my weakness and my pain all these things, I can't turn to anybody. And so the only thing I can really trust is like turning on the computer or going on my phone or like whatever, right? If you name the issue properly, then okay, what's the solution? Not to simply tell people don't do that again. Maybe we need to create safe spaces for people to work through different issues, especially things like I don't like myself or I hate myself, or, I don't trust people, I don't trust friendship. Like those are the types of conversations we need to have, right? Okay. Um, the next thing is this idea of um, discipleship, right? Oh, sorry. Group, group response with regards to spiritual seeking. Um, it's important to kind of design programs and strategies that don't just hit the head, but also hit the hearts. There's a recurring danger, I think, when it comes to designing church programs where the thing just kind of becomes almost like a, a Winston Churchill society. You know, we're like, we get together, it's an opportunity to gather, and we can talk about things, and stimulate the imagination, and okay, there we go, good meeting, we'll see you next month, right? Um, that can be problematic. Like, I, I remember um, back in the day, I, I did this, this whole course, I always remember this, I, I did this whole course on Marian devotion, um, and specifically the topic was um, where you find the seeds of Marian devotion, even going back to the Old Testament. So if there's an opportunity, maybe next month, we'll do that here, you know? 
Um, and, you know, covering all these different things. And the ends was culminating in this opportunity to consecrate life to the Blessed Virgin Mary. And so I set up this thing with a statue and a kneeler and had the prayer, you know. We'd gone through the entire course and almost nobody consecrated her life to Mary. And it's like, oh, shoot, didn't expect that. Hey, but they love the course. <laughs> so I love talking about Mary, I love reading about Mary, I love talking about Marian things. Oh, but consecrate my life to Mary, oh gosh, I didn't realize it was adding up to this. That's a shock. <laughs> And so looking back, I think I would have approached the thing entirely differently. But the idea is people had a certain expectation that all we're going to do is talk about Mary. I didn't realize this had a claim on my life. And that's an entirely different thing, right? So uh, to give you a positive example, um, well, RCIA, right? So that obviously that's the classic vehicle to kind of bring people into the church if they're like adults, right? So uh, baptized or received or whatever the case may be, right? Now, you probably know the stats, right? So most of the time when people enter RCA, um, they leave the church like pretty quick. So I think the stats are like at least 50% of people in the aftermath of RCA, they just stop coming to church altogether and practicing their faith. And so the first time I did RCA, um, yeah, we added that class to the stats. And I thought about it some more. It's like, gosh, like what's missing, right? And I thought what's missing is a sense of discipleship. So what we did, we, we changed up the format. So every single session, there wasn't just the doctrinal element where I'm talking about things like, you know, this commandment or like the Trinity or whatever. There was always a thing talking about prayer. And not just in the abstract, but like, this is how you pray. Because you can tell people to pray, but like prayer means different things to other people, right? And they would, it would end with an actual opportunity to pray before the Lord, the Blessed Sacrament. And I remember the first year we did that, um, everyone, stayed close to the church. And everyone just became naturally apostolic and living out of the space of sacrificial love. And it's like, oh gosh, it does make a difference when you lead people to pray and they come before the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, right? So again, it helps, hopefully it illustrates the point. It, it, the, the church or church programs, church strategies can't simply be a head thing. It's meant to galvanize the entire person. Okay. Now, when it comes to the final thing, the idea obviously is intentional discipleship. So that's, that's the final thing, right? So this is sort of like, to use a biblical analogy, sort of like a, a drop the nets moment. And the thing about intentional discipleship, um, it's not meant to be um, a final thing, right? So it's not like, oh, I choose to be an intentional disciple. Now uh, that's it. I just wait to die, right? Um, the idea is that you're always a person in, in progress. You're always a person in progress. So you even think about St. Peter, right? He denies the Lord three times. Oh my gosh, I, I thought I was here, but actually I'm there, right? So. Uh, there's this awareness that even though I, I choose intentionally to follow Christ the entirety of my being with the intention of becoming another Christ in this world, um, it's an ongoing process. And it's amazing how people tend to forget that. And so this is an example of like doing flowing from being, right? So if you think you're the completed pro product and I've reached the pinnacle and top of the mountain or whatever, that's going to influence what you do in terms of efforts towards evangelization, right? So the idea is that you too you need to recognize that you're a work in progress. And how do you do that? The way you do that is to approach prayer in a really serious and intentional way, right? So different ways to kind of look at this. Um, bishop McCaig, I think he's the uh, bishop for the military ordinary for Canada. He has a really provocative image where he's like, in prayer, what you want to do is you got to bring to the table your authentic self. Like, this is my real self quite apart from what I pretend to be in the eyes of the world, or people that, you know, I'm afraid that they're gonna reject me, this is my real self, and I, I try my darndest to 
to bring unto the Lord over and over again in the context of prayer. And the other side of it is I'm desirous of meeting the real Lord on the other side of that equation. Not the dressed up Lord, not the one I've made up on mind, not the Jesus of the culture, but the, the real one living a true God. Brett Powell, again, he has a more interesting way of putting this as well. Right? So he talks about like, you know, our lives, and it's like, there's obviously like um, the public life, Again, the, the face that we show people at work or in public, you know, the public face, we're all familiar with that. And he says there's also the private life. And he gives this example from that movie Gladiator, you know? So he's like, you know, the Russell Crowe character is talking to a fellow centurion. And it's like, uh, the, the question that's asked is like, um, when you see your family again, what will you say to them? And the Russell Crowe character says, well, to my son, I will say this and this and this. And to my wife, it's none of your business, right? So it's a private life. But there's a level beyond that, and that's the hidden life. That's the hidden life. And that's where the mystery of who you are encounters the mystery of God, right? And the idea is that when we live our lives, we spend a ton of energy and time on the public life, a little bit of time on the private life, next to no time and energy when it comes to the hidden life, whereas actually it should be the reverse. I should put tons of time and energy and attention. The priority should be on the hidden life. Second in line is the private life, and from that flows the public life. And the fruit of it is integrity, right? No matter what situation I'm in, no matter who I'm facing, I'm always the same person, I'm always the person that God calls me to eat because I put the priority on the hidden life above all things. Right? One final thing with regards to intentional discipleship. So when it comes to groups, I'm just going to make this abundantly clear in terms of like what to do going forward, right? Um, a couple of principles to kind of keep in mind. I remember um, attending a leadership course a long time ago um, where they were talking about groups versus teams. And so the idea was that, this is not exhaustive, but like, you know, groups, they don't require a lot of commitments. There's not really a point to it. It's just people kind of gathering. And that can have value. That can have utility, right? Because but the, the teacher was saying, in contrast, teams have, have focus. They're going somewhere. Like, this is the reason why we exist. And when we meet, and when we talk, and when we design programs and strategies, is to accomplish this particular end. And I don't know what the explicit, I forget what the explicit point of the lesson was in that moment, but I remember thinking to myself, for me, the takeaway message is when it comes to parish um, groups, right? There's a lot of parish groups that could be parish teams. And in fact, they should be, right? So if the church is inherently missionary, that means everything we do as individuals and as parish groups should be in service of the mission. But that brings us to the next thing, right? So I'm designing, again, programs and strategies or whatever. Am I mindful of the different levels that we're talking about here? So when I'm doing this, is it meant to cultivate trust? When I'm doing this, is it meant to kind of, you know, meet people in their, in their, in their space of spiritual curiosity? And am I aware of, like, the, the complexity of human experience? You know, I, I remember when I first started preaching about discipleship um, back in the day in my first parish, my biggest fear was that people would come and say, um, okay, that sounds great, where, where, do I, where do I go? What does the church have to offer me? And it's like, yeah, yeah, we got nothing. <laughs> um, to be aware, like, there has to be something for everyone. Like, whether you're young or old, or no matter what your cultural background is, no matter what your faith level is, whether you're shy or outgoing, there, there has to be a place for you. And if there isn't, like, what are we, what are we doing, right? But that brings us to the other thing, right? So the relationship between, like, um, you know, the priests and the clergy and the laity, right? So 
maybe you've heard this before, maybe you haven't, but basically the role of um, the bishop and the priest and the deacons assist him in this regard. The role of the bishop is, is to teach and to sanctify and to govern. And I know that kind of sounds kind of high-end and whatever, right? But the idea is, okay, like, um, the clergy teach the laity, this is right, this is wrong, this is true, this is false. We give you the sacraments, right? And we say, this is the way to go, right? So teach and sanctify and govern. But then go forth, you know? Do your thing, right? So there's structures you work within an environment, but at the same time, the solutions to complex world problems always have to emerge from the laity. So when you look back, you say, like, we did this, as opposed to, Father told me to do this. <laughs> now, what that means, practically speaking, is that you've got to have good process, right? So this presumes deep interior life, this idea of discovering the truth. So through prayer, through real, genuine discussion, as opposed to we're doing this because this is what we've always done, like real, authentic discussion, contemplation, prayer, whatever, to discover the truth in terms of what does God want me, what does he want us to do as a group and as a parish community. And to be mindful of that, like to, to discover the reality. Um, this idea one priest talked about in terms of like, you don't wanna ask God to bless what you're doing, you wanna do what God is blessing. And it might not come immediately. That's the thing, that's the beauty of, of parish community, right? We, we're together, but we're so different. We have so many different charisms, and, and there's, to not be threatened by that, but to realize that's a really, really beautiful thing. Like, there are a lot of things that people can do that I can't do. I have this running joke here at the parish that I'm good at certain things, but the things I'm bad at, I'm terrible, <laughs> right? But thank God, I'm part of a Christian community, right? So when it comes to any kind of issue, it's, it's not like this person's problem or that person's problem, it's our problem, and we come together to come up with really serious solutions. So just to kind of keep all that stuff in mind, right? So the stuff that we're talking about tonight, last night, the previous night, I know it's a lot of stuff, and I, I don't want you to come away from the mission thinking like, well, that was great, but I don't remember a thing. <laughs> so listen to the things again, watch it again on the podcast, maybe take notes, um, talk about with people over coffee, maybe talk about with your groups, and, and make sure that you get to the point where like, it's, it's just part of the lexicon. You know, this is, this is just how we think, right? Because this thing we're talking about, again, living the mission of the church, it's not something you do on the side, it, it's the cake, right? So um, just a, I was gonna say just a few things, but that's a lot of things to kind of keep in mind going forward. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.